Among professional managers in Pennsylvania, Beverly Sigler needs very little introduction. She is a Penn State Distinguished Professor of Public Policy and Administration Emerita. She received a BA from Teal College and an MA and PhD degrees from Penn State, all in political science. She taught at Wayne State, North Carolina State, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Penn State Harrisburg. She specializes in intergovernmental relations, focusing on state and local relations, policy, politics, and management. Her key substantive interests are intermunicipal cooperation, alternative service delivery, land use, emergency management, public finance, counties, and general issues of governance. Bev has authored more than 175 peer-reviewed articles. She has received the Leslie Whittington Award for Excellence in Teaching from NASPA, which is the Network of Schools of Public Policy Affairs and Administration. She's an active researcher, writer, and editor, and has had leadership positions all over the place with national and local professional organizations. You will learn more about her today. I am lucky to live in the same neighborhood as Bev, and we sometimes cross paths on the local walking trail. Although we have had an opportunity to get to know one another, today we venture into some very interesting territory. We talk about challenges municipal managers face, the future research agenda for local government, and we have an unexpected frank discussion about sexual discrimination and harassment. We close with how we can increase the visibility and understanding of what municipal managers do and the value they bring to communities. So let's get started. Hello, Bev. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today on PCC Local Time. Thank you. Hi. It's wonderful to have you here. And I am looking forward to this conversation, which is going to be a vigorous conversation that mixes academic uh, perspectives, which has been all about local governments and your interface with the organizations that impact that field. And I want to just start today to talk a little bit about the arc of your career. So for you, if you could just talk a little bit, begin at the beginning, and what triggered your interest in this area of study? Oh, for me and people my generation, it's really pretty easy. When I was in high school, it was President Kennedy saying, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So that struck the chord. And I can honestly say I never veered away from wanting to be in the public service field. Mm -hmm. My brother and I were first-generation high school graduates in our family. So nobody had uh, graduated high school, let alone gone to college. It was a real uphill climb back then to do that. And for some reason, both my brother and I selected political science. And I, I just found it to be intrinsically interesting, mm-hmm. let alone the public service aspect of it. So that's how I ended up with all three degrees in political science, more on the management side than the gutsy politics side. Mm-hmm. And something, too, about the times. You mentioned uh, the quote from Kennedy, where you impacted by what was going on around you politically at the time. The best thing I could say is I was the valedictorian speaker in high school. And I don't remember much of my speech, but I know it was about public service. 
And the last few lines were, I said, President Kennedy said, ask not what your country could do for you, but what you could do for your country. President Johnson said, let us begin and let the class of 1964 say, let us never be satisfied. Mm-hmm. So there was just uh, every, everybody at that time in our history and then the Vietnam War and civil rights legislation, all those kinds of things. Everybody was coalesced around things political and, and government and public service. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's really a wonderful time to revisit some of the principles and things that founded the field of public administration and to revisit in in light of what is going on in our environment today. Do you see any parallels between that time, the 60s, and today in terms of the sort of collective response to political issues? Yeah, I think that public values are the same as we've always had. So people that go into this field are concerned about effectiveness. They're concerned about efficiency. They're more concerned than ever about equity and environmental things and balancing the economy and environmental issues. The values are stable. The events are more polarized than ever before. And that that's so so there are tougher challenges now in many in many ways because we have a better informed electorate. We have technology that lets everybody know everything at the same time. We can live through things together, but we've become much more polarized. Mm-hmm. That is uh, so true, and we have different ways of expressing our views that it feels very immediate. So I'm just keep moving through because you have a lot of important research here that I want to touch on in our time together. There was an article in the PA Times, which is an ASPA article uh, that had to do with the impact of COVID on researchers. Uh, And as I read through the article, um, this is in the the section for emergency and crisis management. So I thought that was actually a very interesting group to to talk to. But I did see a lot of parallels in the research with other studies about work and workplaces that point to both positive and negative outcomes from the pandemic. And there's one quote that uh, stood out, and I think it's just a good lead-in for some of the other areas that we're going to talk about. You say in here where the article says, uh, when asked how COVID-19 mobilized the hazards research community, one respondent stated it brought us together to consider hazards in a new compounding, cascading way where all our collective expertise is needed. And it suggests to me that what we're talking about in so many areas today that impact public administration are not clear. They are complicated or complex kinds of issues. What can you say more about what that means to you? Most of the people in that section of ASPA, uh, and I should first say that is an unusual for ASPA because it's not just a bunch of academics, but it's heavily practitioners. So it's a really good organization to be part of. But most of those people are interested in natural hazards. 
which because of climate change are increasing in, increasing in volume, increasing in severity, and, and so on. And they, they're on the response end of it, as opposed to recovery or mitigation and preparedness in the first place. In my area is mitigation, especially of flood hazards, how to avoid them in the first place. But I think what the pandemic did is for most people came so suddenly, they're now talking uh, about two big things. One is what they call surprise management, that this uh, rolling disaster came quickly, unknown causes, unknown cures, no vaccine, no treatments. It's, it's, so what do you do? It, it just totally changes how you have to respond. Yeah, surprise management. And the other is we have multiple disasters or different disasters at the same time. For example, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, was working on the pandemic, and they were the key agency having to uh, deal with supplies and PPE, personal protective equipment, and testing supplies, get them out. But Shortly after they became in charge, they had to prepare for the hurricane season. And the hurricane seasons these days are worse than ever. So the, a whole new field or subfield within emergency management is how do you deal with multiple disasters at the same time? I think that anything these days, things are so complex that you need the best minds coming together and all working collectively, and more than ever now, that's a challenge in emergency management. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I have some other articles that I've written on how to mainstream emergency management and public administration. Those of us in that field think it's so important that it should be part of the core and integrated in every one of the other core courses that you take. So you have to budget for it, for example. It requires different emphases for human resources. And I could policy analysis, you go right out down the line. So mainstreaming emergency management into public administration. And that's catching on, actually. That makes a lot of sense. And in working with local governments who are trying to improve their sort of communication with the county operations. Can you say something more about what's happening that looks to you like promising some kinds of actions that local governments are taking? Yeah, in general, the national government, Federal Emergency Management Agency, has been working for years to have its regional offices around the country improve and work with local governments. And as part of that, states have to have emergency management plans and counties within states have to have plans. So just because of a lot of collaborative things that the national government has required to get funding, especially mitigation funding, local governments have had to learn how to cooperate more and better. Mm -hmm. So cities and counties are, are one example. I think you have a morphine position of emergency management coordinator at, like we're talking township level, borough level, that before was, you didn't really, I was never asked to really interview them. When I go into organizations, they're like, oh, that's just a sort of an adjunct position. And now it's being incorporated 
more in more formally in the structure. Yeah, it, it's amazing. When my husband and I lived in North Carolina, I worked with a lot of communities on their emergency management plans. And it, it would be common sense that the first thing you do with the plan is say that the last people to leave the town during an emergency are it, it would be the mayor, you know, the manager, the elected official or the manager. And you wouldn't believe how controversial that was. The especially the mayors, they didn't want to be the last ones to leave during a disaster. But now that's uh, routine and expected and highly professionalized. Uh, you hire an emergency manager for that local community. And so let's talk about the role of the municipal manager. Yeah, just the role of the manager in general. Most residents have no clue of a person with the staff in, in many respects being responsible for millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And the entire life of that community, life and death decisions in terms of public safety, which would be policing, but also emergency management and everything else that a community does. In terms of the managers, they've always been told that managers are neutral, but it's impossible to be neutral because None of us can be neutral because by definition, whatever you choose to focus on is a bias. It's as simple as that. And the poor manager has to focus on everything. They manage the town and all of its resources mm -hmm. and have to deal with uh, today all the increasing polarization and so on. Public administration really struggles with, through NASPA, it's the crediting organization, developing minimal standards that everybody should have. And so an awful lot of attention is paid to curriculum development more than other fields where the faculty, you could do more of your own thing. But in public administration, it's guided by core principles, core curricula, and uh, you come and are evaluated on that. And it's a generalist curriculum on the one hand, but then managers also have to be specialists in other areas. They all really have to know their finance. They have to know planning. And uh, like in Pennsylvania, planning, zoning, building inspections. And I could go right on down the line. So it's really tough job. I just saw this in a, a municipality, very well-known municipality in another state. The elected officials were discussing and debating whether it was okay to hire somebody that had no experience in municipal management for a fair-sized city. And I think it speaks to that sort of lack of awareness of what actually municipal managers or kind of training they get and that academic part of it, which can certainly be acquired in different ways, but is essential, pretty essential to understanding so we, we have a gap in understanding, even at the elected body level, of what it exactly it is that needs to happen at the manager level. Yeah, exactly. I remember when my husband and I left Pennsylvania and we moved to North Carolina for nine years. And then we came back to Pennsylvania. The very first talk I gave when we came back, after having lived in North Carolina, which is a totally professionalized state, Little towns with 500 people have 
full-time municipal managers there. They have a hundred counties. I think when we were there in the eighties, all but two had a, a professional county administrator. But when we came here, I was giving a talk to township officials and trying to make the argument that Pennsylvania needs more professional managers. And one township supervisor rose out of a seat very angrily and said, are you saying I'm not a professional? And, and I said, whoa, I hadn't thought of it that way because in North Carolina, everybody understood what a professional manager was. Well, not everybody, but it was much more understood than here. So we, we uh, here we had 2,500 local governments and about 350 municipal managers at the time. I learned my lesson with the yes. word professional. Well, let me ask the naive question here for those who might be thinking it themselves. What is a professional manager in the context of municipal management? Wow, that is, that's a tough one. It's someone uh, who has the skills and the ability to run a workable democracy that provides all the necessary services to the citizens. Mm -hmm. And where is the line between that manager and the elected body? What is, makes, what is distinguishing about their two different roles, the role of one versus the other? Local governments have municipal codes and it, it lays out the roles and responsibilities. I can give you an example of something I just read about over the weekend. There's a community in Mercer County that had a, a, an incident where the relative of the mayor, nephew of the mayor, was involved in a, a gun incident, mm. a, mm. a light gun incident. And the town is a home rule community and the charter says that the mayor does not direct the police. Okay. That's the manager's job. But the mayor in this case was the relative of the perpetrator or alleged perpetrator. And the mayor intervened and started telling the police and the staff what they had to do. So just think of the ethical dilemma and that the manager was in. And that's the kind of a situation you're having more and more problems with today. But in this case, there, there is essentially a local constitution that, that lays out who's in charge and who's responsible. And it shouldn't have been an event, it shouldn't have been a controversy, but it's still ongoing right now. But now, that's a, a typical emerging kind of problem that the manager has. Mm. We all have values, and above all, the manager has to stick with his or her personal values and the ethics code that ICMA has, and it, it try to be neutral where, where neutral works. Mm -hmm. But when things go over the line, you have to step in. If this is the age of truth decay, as they call it, and misinformation. 
So if you're the manager and it's a controversial issue in your town and the dominant discourse is something based on misinformation, what do you do? Let that go? Or do you step in with the, the appropriate information? To me, that's not being biased or political because facts are facts. And, and why should that be controversial if you use facts? But it is in our society. So many leaders are able to sidestep this issue, but not municipal managers. They really are in, put in a position, and I find that at its best, it can be a real shining light for how to walk a path. Neutral is not the right word. Apolitical would be uh, an appropriate word. Not that it's That's a better word. Yeah, it's, it's not an easy path to go, but it's one that you navigate. And I like what you said, you have to have your own personal stance. And then you need to act within the larger interests. And this, to me, is like that larger framework is the values of the community. So that safety, what is it that makes us safe as a community? What is it that makes us reliable so that the people can be sure that we're going to be here? You have to think through what it is exactly that's going to keep them safe. And even where there's misinformation, try to find ways to engage. And I think it's that engagement piece. And again, going back to your research, I really like the research that you did. It's a recent work, a new and reinvigorated research agenda for U.S. local governments. And I think that comparing some of the research, at first, the, the, the study looks at what the past decade brought forward. And we see in that, that there has been a growing interest around collaboration and also a lot of like social justice related issues intergovernmental relationships, all areas of management as it relates to people, human resources and operations, and also performance management. How do we measure performance of, of government? But public engagement was one of them and technology we have in there. But it goes on to talk about what seems to be emerging as so crucial going forward. And I don't know if there's a particular area in this study that, that stood out for you or that you worked on in particular, Bev, you were one of seven, one of seven who worked on this. What was your opinion? Well, what, what happened was the uh, state local government review, which is one of the, the two major intergovernmental journals, basically approached seven of us that they picked out and asked us to write an article of a future research agenda based on what's going on. And so we got together and they're going to release a podcast because the way we did it was the seven of us got together one day last December and uh, recorded a podcast. It was unplanned, but we had some guided questions that we had put together and we just talked. And then out of that, one person took the lead and the rest of us wrote parts of it and then looked at the whole thing. So that will be available to on the website of the journal. But two things I could just mention now. One, I think that the nature of our times is demanding that managers more than ever do things more collaboratively with the town council, starting with orientation. Okay. 
it, it takes a little bit of guts if you're the manager and you get a turnover on the council and new council members come in to say, okay, I'm going to do some training of you to understand your role and what the issues are and so on. But I think that has to be done in this day and age. It reduces the friction. It gets people to understand what the rules are and understand how local government works. Because people, when people run for public office at the local level, they often just run for based on one issue or they run because they're civic minded and they want to do good, but it doesn't at all mean they understand how local government works and the manager is central there and can do that. So you're seeing more and more of the managers being uh, pretty bold up front and doing things uh, in a collaborative way to educate their councils, and, and that's real important. And then by the same token, citizen engagement is changing. It used to just be go to the, the town meeting and complain, and uh, nobody else shows up. And nowadays, with technology, local governments can do an awful lot on the educative end of things. And I think that they're doing that. They've, the managers have grasped that opportunity and understand that and are, are really changing how we engage citizens. It is taking a, a, a higher level of skill. Would you agree on that in terms of some of the... Yeah, they're new skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. So that's going to be on the website uh, and we can create a link when that's available. Do you want to say something as well on the issues around social equity and race and ethnicity? It was mentioned in here and I have had conversations recently with managers who have been talking about a more um, intense agenda at uh, national meetings and even more at the state level around these issues. And I think it, that some are mm, maybe disquieted by the assumption that they are to address these issues from their role as local government managers when it can be actually a much broader sort of policy issue. And, and I think, that, again, looking back over the tenets of the ICMA and maybe thinking about that role of local manager what do you think a municipal manager should keep in mind as they navigate and maybe don't have a diverse workforce or there might be issues within their community? However, that might strike you. Do you have any thoughts in terms of the role of the municipal manager in moving those issues forward? Yeah, I think you could divide it into two parts. So in the one part, the managers have to be cognizant of social equity and the need for inclusion and diversity and just have that be part of their job. So when they're recruiting, they take that into account. It's nothing that, that has to be on banners or publicized in a big way or anything else. That's the bulk of what they do. But every so often, some issue may, might come up in the town that's more public mm-hmm. and uh, polarized. There might be misinformation. Then they need to engage and uh, actually support mm-hmm. such 
engagement. And in, you know, Pennsylvania, the local governments don't deal with school districts. But when my husband and I lived in North Carolina, the county governments do education. And so you could imagine what the problems are there now with the polarization and arguments about critical race theory. Today's election day, and I see in Virginia, they've been having big protests about, we don't want anyone to teach critical race theory in our schools. They don't teach it. Yeah, people are, are all hyped up about it. So if you were a, a manager official, I can't see how you could avoid at least trying to help create a forum to, ha to have discussion on that. Doesn't mean you're taking sides or anything like that. So the same with any other contentious issue at local level that involves equity. I think it's the manager's responsibility to uh, try to help and support rational public discourse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this makes me you know, think about, I'm going to just grab this other article here that you sent me and you had mentioned that there was, there's a lot of interest in this article. You've sent it out to a lot of managers across the country, learning and communication skills for MPA students. And in there, you talk about the importance of just using inquiry, that as a manager, your job isn't necessarily to always determine outcomes. Your job is to use this curiosity of line and inquiry, which you're trained to do in your graduate studies, to ask, actually explore what it is that community uh, might benefit from. You mentioned just putting together a forum or putting together ad hoc discussion groups around issues. Yeah, I was uh, surprised at that. I, that was a an invited column that I did for PA Times, but not their weekly or daily thing. It was for a quarterly publication. It's like a magazine, and it's called Learning and Communication Skills for MPA Students. So I wrote it, and I was surprised. Apparently, a ton of managers read that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I got letters from municipal managers all around the country saying that they agree that's just the kinds of skills they need. Mm. And so I talked about cultural competence, com community competence, innovative thinking, innovative learning, and so on. And uh, again, the public administration community tries to incorporate a lot of that in contemporary MPA programs. It's, it's a way for us to actually come to a, maybe a better understanding of diverse views, how important that is. You say in here, and I will also link this in the, uh, the show notes, right. cooperation is not necessarily hampered by competition. Rather, contrasting ideas compete with each other until one stands out as better. And I think about, we did a, a session in the community about developing management teams and all the ways that you can get that management team to be more collaborative, working across silos and sharing how they are, are solving problems. And it, this reminds me of, in fact, one of the discussions in that was about a capital improvement planning. We'll talk about competition, <laughs> capital improvement planning. All of the, the managers, department managers, they have their interests or staked interests. And so they have to come to some agreement as to what is going to actually become. Sure. And the manager 
isn't necessarily going to say, boom, this is what it's going to be. Or at least not until there is some really generative discussion. Which I think is a skill. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Good example. There's so much good stuff in here. Uh, and I love the closing quote. You say a high quality American democracy is largely dependent upon MPA students. <laughs> yeah, I really think that. It's the only field really where the whole focus is developing the kinds of skills and thought processes that you need in the contemporary world. Yep. The rock foundation of our democracy is at the local government level. And uh, yes, I, I think it deserves much more attention than it's getting. Yeah, well, just in general, I spent, I, uh, for 10 years, worked it, intensely with the legislature in Pennsylvania. I was a scholar, visiting scholar there a couple of times. Then I had a research associate position with a nonpartisan research organization in, in Harrisburg. And it was amazing to me how the state legislators and staff always referred to the local governments as competitors in a way, and very few as partners. And it led me to do a national study on, it was counties, looking at that. And I think I found only 16 states in which you could really conclude that the state officials looked upon counties as partners. One of the thing, things that I've done is try to convince state legislators that the state's future is the result of the aggregation of what the local governments are doing. You can't even talk about a state economy unless it's an aggregate of the local regional economies and so on. But boy, is that a tough hill we're climbing to convince everybody that local governments should be their partners. Mm -hmm. But, we're, you know, we, we won't go anywhere, especially in a state like Pennsylvania with so many local governments, unless you have that supportive attitude and partnership, collaborative arrangement with the state and local government. Yeah. That opens up just, just a little bit more. This another area that you write a lot about in the intergovernmental co cooperation. And I'm thinking this has changed since I began in this field, but used to be focused on merging municipalities. That didn't work well, <laughs> but now it is really this more cooperative idea where I've been thinking a lot about hub structures. And I think I've seen some good examples in the state in some cases, it might be a council of government that's doing it, but it doesn't have to be where there is a municipality that is is really concentrating on a few services, which means the surrounding communities can participate and be part of that without necessarily, they don't have to replicate it. They can work together on that particular, whether it's the MS4 programs or whether it's recreation, those kinds of cooperative arrangements. I'm not sure if it goes as far as you envision, though. In your best vision for intergovernmental cooperation, what does that look like? I'm glad you asked this one. I, for a number of years, uh, led a research team that had a sociologist, a planner, an economist, and political scientist. That was me. 
on the team. And we did research in multiple states in the U.S. and in Canada on what we called MC Square, multi-community collabor collaboration. And I did, for my part of the research, I developed a continuum that went from conflict to, on one end, to communication, then coordination, I, I'm sorry, conflict, then communication, cooperation, coordination, and collaboration. Because yeah. all of those things are different. It's one thing just to talk to your neighbor, communicate. And sometimes you could cooperate on some things, but once you start getting into actual coordination or true collaboration, which I call shared destiny, you're changing values. It's, it's a whole different value system and it's truly organizational change. So I almost never have true collaboration. And I'll give you some examples. I did some baseline research on councils of government in Pennsylvania and that led to being invited to give speeches all over the state to various council government groups. And it struck me after a while that every time I went like to a, the dinner of a council government that had 18 members, they had uh, round tables and each community sat with each other. So you'd have the community, the mayor, council, couple council members, the solicitor and whatever. That sit together, and then the next community over that's part of that council of government would be sitting over there, and they never talk to each other. So just how they would arrange where you sit would start getting that communication going, and you might end up doing something. And then the worst example that I remember is I was invited to give like the keynote speech at a Chesapeake Bay conference. And that's the, the organization that runs multiple states in DC to clean up the Chesapeake Bay. And the way they do it is they rotate who chairs the conference. So one year it's Pennsylvania, one year it's Virginia, one year it's Maryland, and they have the conference in the other guy's state. So th that year, Maryland organized the conference of the Chesapeake Bay program but it was delivered in DC and someone before I gave my speech, they had a uh, lunch and someone left the mic on and there was a big fight between the organizers of Maryland and the organizers of Virginia about the organization of the conference. And yet the whole conference theme was collaboration. Wow. It was just all of these examples are really embarrassing. So what this all led me to is on a campaign to teach collaborative skills. And that is missing. So while everybody talks, we got to do multi-municipal planning and we got to cooperate on this and we got to do that. Collaborative skills are not inherent to us. You know, we're, as people, we're independent. And fend for yourself, that kind of thing. I think that as a first step, you need some training and collaborative skills. That's why MPA programs are important. They teach that now. But for any local government that wants to start getting into collaboration, they need to take some time and step, step back and get uh, some help, some training, or just do it yourself. 
but figure out that kind of stuff before you can jump in something and be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some natural tendencies that can come out. And I think there is, and there's healthy, and there's healthy debate, as you said, competition isn't a bad thing, but it is understanding in a broader context what you're trying to get to. Yeah, if you, I had another article uh, where I would go to meetings and I just took notes of the language that people used. And I ended up with some categories, the language of war, the language of sports and so on. Very few terms that come out of the cooperative things. Put me in coach or I'm a team player. It's mostly let's plant our flag here looking upon things as a competitive battlefield. So if you don't deal with the early communication and change your language, develop the skills on how to give and take, you won't get anywhere in the long run. Mm -hmm. You do mention uh, in your article on the learning and communication skills that effective learning is how we deal with things emotionally. Uh, And I think this is another just really key area Also, that you shift from caring about something, which is uh, a value perhaps, but moving that to commitment, that taking it and actually putting that into something that you're committed to yourself, you're able to commit that energy to it, and then you can begin to lead. Yeah, I said it a couple of minutes ago, feelings of shared destiny. That's what real collaboration is. We We never get that far most of the time. Mm-hmm. It also reminds me of one of your pieces of advice to students is uh, that they understand that the probably the most important decision they make in their life will be their partner, their spouse for life. And I thought that was uh, beautiful and relevant because it does impact how we how we live our life, both in the workplace. I don't know if you might say some more about. More and more, I think managers are recognizing that work-life life balance is really important because be, being a manager of a community is really a 24-7, 365 job. They're the end responsibility. It's really tough to get that work-life balance. So the, that little thing that you're article that you're talking about it was the 30th anniversary of the PhD program at Penn State Harrisburg. And they have a panel that was supposed to give advice to students. And we had some questions that we had to address. And one was, what kind of tips can you have to students? And so then after the panel, I just wrote it up and sent it to PA Times. But I think I agree with you that the balance of uh, work life is uh, crucial. And students, that's all you hear from them is, oh, my stumbling block is picking the, the right research topic or doing the right research design. And I thought, no, it's picking who you work with, whether it's your marriage uh, or your partner or best friend or whatever, somebody that you're going to work with. I also tell them I've been married 51 years. Mm-hmm. Congratulations and, on that. But- yeah, last December, September. And my husband really is, as Bette Mittler would say, the wind beneath my sails. I couldn't have gotten anywhere without a total collaborative work and support of each other and so on. I try to have the students understand that 
they need to early on recognize that. Yeah. Do you mind me asking something in, in relation to your gender? And did, when you started this field, were there fewer women involved? And have you noticed any evolution in that respect of terrible trouble when I uh, first started? I was one of the only women in the graduate program. Even in 1988, when I went to Penn State Harrisburg, I was the, the only female in the public administration master's or PhD programs. And it's really rough. Often I would go into faculty meetings and I know, not know what they were talking about because they had their better discussions in the men's room. <laughs> they already decided what was going on. And I was just totally out of it. And I remember at, at NC State, my second year at North Carolina State, I get called into the dean's office, which is rare at a big university like that. 26,000 people, most, you, you only meet the dean at a reception. And he had all these spreadsheets and he said, you're underpaid. This was a really nice guy. And uh, on the spot, he gave me a 17% salary increase. So somebody had WN. When I was hired, I wasn't getting the you know salary, and I could go on and on with that. So my experience hasn't been some wonderful experiences like this male dean noticing that and taking action. Of course, my husband, but some other really horrible experiences. And when you're the female on the faculty, if there's trouble between professors, uh, even sexual advances, all that kind of stuff, the, the female students come to you to solve it. Mm. And it puts you in really bad situations. Mm. I've been in many of them trying to, to help the students. I think that your point about the conversations is a, such a critical one. What conversations are we included in tells us a lot about where we fit in the organization. And I've never told this story publicly, but I'll just say it straight out. When I was still working at the consulting firm where I began, I had a boss who at the time I was, I had great access. I was felt I, I worked well with all the male consultants. They were labor negotiators. I was a human resource person, but this one particular boss, which was put over me to supervise me basically uh, wanted a sexual relationship in which I said, no, I'm interested in a professional relationship. And I thought being a young woman, that that's how you manage it. You just say, you know, no, I want a professional relationship. And that didn't work. And his retaliation to me on that was to close me out of meetings, of dinners, of outings. I was just like thrown out the side door into the cold. And I, aside from the fact that he hired someone to, he made my direct supervisor and I had to train that person. That was also <laughs> one of those moments where I said, and I, Anita Hill hadn't testified at that point. I just, I didn't put it into any other context other than he was a real. That was weak. I gave a talk at a, the NASPA conference. It was all virtual this year. And I signed up for lots of other sessions, virtual. And one really struck my eye. It was a session on female graduate students' dilemma in graduate programs when they're 
professor makes sexual advances. And in the abstract of the program, it had the name of one of the biggest names in local government ever. He was also the head, the editor of public administration review and esteemed he had two endowed chairs at Florida State and graduate students, just a whole bunch of them, a couple dozen that everybody identifies with him. Unbeknownst to me, apparently once in the, for 30 years, he had been accused of sexual advances to female students, mostly Asian students. And twice the university had done things about it, sent them to courses to shape up. But then they erased the files, threw the documents out, and he goes merrily on his way. And two female professors fought the battle. They would tell female students what to do, how to follow grievances, stay away from this guy and so on, but nothing worked. The university liked the money. He, the guy was bringing in millions of dollars of grant money. And this panel that I watched last week had four of the students and uh, two of them left the university. One said she was from South Korea. She thought this was the way they do stuff in America. They all said they were worried that he threatened them. He told him your career will go nowhere. You'll never get your degree. It was uh, really bad. And that panel not only was about that guy, but then there was apparently another guy down in Florida did the same thing. And by the way, this guy Dallas in Pennsylvania is a local government consultant as he's from Pennsylvania. So uh, he'll probably rise up again, but over 30 years and he got away with this. And I, I, it's so obscene that I won't even say the things he did. We're talking oral sex, stuff like that. It's a major thing. And what these female students did is they have asked the journals in the field and all the professional associations to take a stand and do better vetting uh, of people for things like being the editor of a journal and write editorials on this subject and, and so on. So there's just a little movement starting now. They did, a, they had a 350 page report on this from the latest female people who filed grievances. And the day before he was to be interviewed, he quit. And Florida State said, it's none of our problem anymore. And other universities now have wanted to hire him because he's such a distinguished local government professor. I'm sick about it. Yeah, I, I don't, I can see why. I just think this is another point in why conversations are so important. First of all, it's powerful when you're included in the conversations and when you're excluded from conversations, but then you take back your, your power by saying, I can also have a conversation. And it is, I think, the reason why I, I want to help people have the conversations that they're avoiding is for these reasons, finding ways to just say what it is that's going on. I never spoke out. I started my own company. I just left, which worked out for me. But I also wish I would have gone and told, told somebody in the organization. 
And I think the whole structure is set. You're thinking to yourself, particularly as a young woman, you don't have the experience behind you to know how to navigate. You're thinking, I don't want to be identified as the problem. There's just a lot of repercussions that you imagine that may not be there. And I think the conversations about what has happened to to us, and this goes for everyone. This is, we're talking about a particularly sensitive topic to to women, but of course it happens at all levels in different ways that impact each of us. And I hope that we can find ways to, to do a better job of talking about these kinds of issues and how they come about in our organizations and, and how it is that we just miss it. We, we don't deal with it very well. I really appreciate you sharing your experience. And let me tell you one more thing. Please do. Uh, My second semester at Penn State Harrisburg, five female students approached me with a really terrible situation. I went to the professor and uh, he blamed it on the other male students. Then I went to his best friend and he said, oh, that's just Joe. It wasn't his name. And then I went to the head of the program. He went to the provost. And the penalty for this guy was he got a semester off with pay to think about what he'd done. Oh, my goodness. And to make the long story short, my husband and I, about a month ago, were at a uh, cookout at one of my husband's colleagues' house. A former colleague, he's my husband's retired, as am I. And one of those students was at the parties because she's been married 29 years and she met her husband at our house. We had a party once and she married my husband's colleague. So we were talking and I told her that this professor that they had all reported had died a few years ago. And she told me for the first time that he approached her and accused her of going to me and telling me about him and threatened her. Oh my goodness. Oh, it just doesn't quit. Mm-hmm. So 29 years later, I find this out. Mm-hmm. You really do have to find your moral standpoint early and it, it, it's to live with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be difficult when you're young, I think, a young professional. And I think that's where we really need to focus. Okay. That got us off on a very inter- interesting uh, topic, but I think it, it, it's very relevant. So apparently it happens more in the workplace than I'm, I realize. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So we could perhaps have a whole different session on that particular topic. I can feel the energy there. And I think it's one that others would also want to have. I want to, before we we close, because there's another paper here that I do want to talk about. I wanted to ask you about what, first of all, what it is that you think of when you envision a healthy municipal government, we've talked about a number of things here. I think you've mentioned the collaborative skills that are uh, necessary for a good, healthy environment. You've mentioned uh, fiscal integrity. We're also talking about the the just the social um, 
equity and, and issues that have to do with treating everyone fairly within the workplace. Also, we've talked about safety, planning for mitigation efforts and contingency planning in the event of unanticipated uh, events. But I- well, some collaborative skills, but also citizen engagement. Citizen engagement. You know, a large amount of the citizens engaged. Mm-hmm. So I want to shift, if we could, to the article you sent about the nursing homes. And this is a fairly recent article that uh, you published. And it interests me for the fact that it looks specifically at some of the worker behaviors because nursing homes were such a critical focal point of the pandemic uh, and the spread of COVID, this was a particularly fertile area to look at. And you did that. You looked at it from a number of community health perspectives. When I first began my career, nursing homes were still part of county governments. Do you remember that? Yes. So still still are. Are there still few? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've had a chance through the course of my career to to interview at a number of them. So I have a feel of what it's like to work inside one of those nursing homes. I've interviewed just a lot of people. Plus, I've had a family member who was isolated through lockdown. It had a horrible impact on, it was my brother, his health. When he came out of lockdown, the first thing he did was break his hip because he hadn't moved for a year. But why don't you talk a moment about why you did this particular, it's called Nursing Homes and COVID-19, One State's Experience. I wrote that with another article about the whole COVID-19 and how we got into it. I noticed that 40% of the deaths from the pandemic were in nursing homes. And in some states, 60 and 70%, Pennsylvania being one of those. And everybody was blaming the governors. And and at the very beginning, the national government waived training requirements for nurses in, in nursing homes. And in fact, one reporter took the training online, passed the test by looking up the answers online, and got certified as a nurse to work in a nursing home in 45 minutes. Mm. That's not exactly someone who's going to stop the virus. And on. So that's why I focused on the beginning of the pandemic and the fact that the national government has overwhelming powers, mm. sweeping authority. And then I looked at how the authority was used. And with nursing homes, What I found with my case study in Pennsylvania and what I found what other people were doing with empirical research in multiple states is we all found that it wasn't what you'd expect that caused the problem in a nursing home. The problem was that nurse, the lower level nurses, not registered nurses, but the lower level nurses, the ones that do most of the work and spend most of the time with patients are so poorly paid, yes. like $35,000, and such poor benefits 
that they don't just work in one nursing home. They work in multiple nursing homes or do home care. And by going from home to home in the community, if the virus is spreading, they take it back to the nursing home. So the explanation for what happened with nursing homes and 40% of the deaths until we got the vaccine and put nursing home residents first was due to community spread by the nursing staff. So that's why I got into it. Mm -hmm. And it should have never been. It's truly a tragedy because nursing home residents are less than one half of 1% of the population of the United States, but 40% of the deaths during this pandemic. So they're vulnerable to begin with because they're sicker, they're aged, all that kind of stuff. But it was our national government waivers, exemptions, policies that caused the problem. Mm -hmm. So just so I make sure I understand, you're thinking about early measures that were not taken, that that, that exacerbated this community spread and that impacted this vote. Yeah, another one is we gave no priority to PPE in nursing homes, yeah. no priority for testing supplies in nursing homes. I could go on and on. The other article looks at four categories of action and inaction, poor planning, that kind of stuff that you could give multiple examples of what we did with nursing homes in each category. Yeah. And so we have here, I think, a theme looking across sort of frontline workers. That's truly what in nursing homes. So a lot of front, what we call frontline workers, as you said, they're lowest paid. They're just, they're working at a lot of, probably at a grocery store down the street, as well as at that nursing home. There's just a lot there. They're taking on jobs and there wasn't any real attention paid to how that was impacting that inside that facility. Thanks followed the national government guidelines. Nursing homes are hospitals, and the national government said it's okay to take COVID patients. We did. The deal was you could take, and nursing homes could take COVID patients if the nursing home felt that they could safely take care of them. We had a completely different standard than what you'd find at a hospital, but yet it's a, exactly. it's a skilled nursing facility. I think there's just so much, there's a lot of interesting data here, but again, going forward, thinking about a mix of a care to stick approach, because my, again, to my personal experience with my brother, when they did come out of lockdown, there was no, and the vaccine was possible. There was so many staff that would not get vaccinated. So you have, again, staff who are helping with every kind of getting up and down out of your bed, using the bathroom, bathing, and they are not willing to get vaccinated. So they are. So, uh, this is a population, if, if we can look at what they are doing with respect to their vaccine policies, we might also think about what's going on in other workplaces, including municipal governments. So again, in municipal governments, I'm starting to hear about vaccine policies, and they are, again, a blend of sort of a carrot and a stick. This is what will happen if you do. You can use your sick leave. If you don't get vaccinated, you're going to have to be tested. Those kinds of policies. And I think the nursing homes are um, still walking that thin line of we're going to lose staff if we mandate. So what can we do in this in-between 
It's not yeah. quite, it's not mandated, but we're going to make it difficult for you. Or, we, or we're going to somehow try to <laughs> make it worth your while. Yeah. So everything I said about the containment coming from community, lack of containment and community spread with these low paid workers, I, my article only went till through May mm-hmm. and for Pennsylvania started getting into the vaccine and very low rates of getting the vaccines. And I noticed a couple of weeks, I'm still collecting articles a couple of weeks ago, the numbers are still very low. So then that you pick up very accurately what's happened since. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a good parallel to other things with other municipal workers. Right. But we have in our local governments, what we hear about is the police departments are hit the hardest with COVID. That makes sense. They're going in people's homes. Or they're, they're with people. Yeah. So we really have work ahead of us. And again, in, in the role of the municipal manager, that those skills, which are listening skills and understanding different perspectives and trying to find a workable way to keep people safe uh, and at the same time you know, it's hard to it's hard to put this in a framework that is is totally shared because we're not really in that place yet as a population. There are those who just feel very strongly that there are you know measures that should not be mandated by government, and then those who feel that there is just the right way and there is no other way. And no matter where you fall on that spectrum. It doesn't change the fact that we have to work together. We, it's not a, um, it's not a, an option. <laughs> so we have to take into to consideration that whole spectrum of humanity, as you will say. So I, I like very much that you really dig so deep into these issues. Your research is rich in, in so many ways of looking at these really critical issues in local government that impacts all of society. And I, I want to just close. I, you know, I wanted to ask you about any recommendations that you could think of how we might increase the visibility of municipal management as a profession. I'm just curious if you can think of any ways that we can improve that outlook. When we were in North Carolina, the it's very heavily professionalized at the county and the municipal level. The managers, through their association, wrote a kind of a textbook for local schools on municipal government that highlighted the role of managers. And in North Carolina, that's been very successful. Other states have done that. So that's one thing. I think the managers need to be part of the education. And a, a, a nice little trend, I see a lot of the managers do teach adjunct yeah. at a local university in Pennsylvania. They see me going to do that. That's really useful. Universities themselves are starting to hire professors of practice, which is useful. And that hires a lot of managers. So there are some things like that going on. But I think... The websites of, municip- of municipalities could do a lot more mm-hmm. to, to educate about what local government does and what the manager's role is, rather than the, the, the traditional handbooky kinds of things. Right, right. Yeah. Coming live. 
I do think that they're with uh, young professionals, they care very much about impacting their community. And I would like to just highlight that there is that opportunity in going into municipal management in so many ways that whether you're the municipal manager or you're going to be involved more with planning or engineering, or there's just a lot of ways to really impact your environment, your community. Oh, and any kind of internship experiences that a local government can extend to be really useful. The Managers Association does have some funded internships that they run. Yeah. The state has done that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so in Pennsylvania really needs to have more. See, the other thing is Pennsylvania's managers traditionally have not been educated in Pennsylvania. They've come from other states because programmed. We don't have anywhere nearly the number of programs that we should for a state of our size. Yeah. Carolina, when I moved back here in 1988, North Carolina had twice as many managers as Pennsylvania and I think nine universities offering MPAs and in Pennsylvania, nowhere nearly that, just a handful. I think I mentioned to you, you what people may not know is you and I share our walking trails in Derry Township. (laughs) And one day I ran into you and I I mentioned that your college started an MPA and I need to follow up on that. I think that might be some managers that might want to be involved with that. Also yourself. Better. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of that walking trail, uh, what people may not know is I've passed you, you're usually taking, uh, feed to the birds on the pond there. Oh, yeah. And and I I was walking by there. I want you to tell me exactly what those white birds are. But do you think those white birds, were they, you said they came from someplace else, but they've all. Yeah, the the township has signs up saying, please don't feed the birds. You will rack up their vibration powder and so on. The trouble is, four years ago, some people had white ducks, domestic ducks, which are too big to fly. They're nine to 12 pounds. And I guess they got sick of taking care of the ducks. So they dumped them at Shank Park. I'm not at Shank Park, at Wolfrow Valley Pond. And the poor white ducks can't survive unless you feed them. Mm. And in the wintertime, they really can't survive. There was one winter about four years ago where the whole place was iced over. My husband and I used to get down to my house. We would take a pickaxe and yeah, and break the ice for the poor little ducks. The I saw someone let a dog loose that killed one of the white ducks, and then other people told me that a truck hit the other two. So yeah. there were four white ducks, and now then it became one. And for some reason, a mallard that this doesn't look like a regular mar- mallard, some kind of cross, teamed up with the one white duck, and they're their buddies and he that mallard can't fly either so that's what i've done now for four years i feed those two ducks and just about four or five months ago some people dumped off two more big white ducks mm-hmm. and they cannot fly well, in addition to being domestic and not being able to fly lots of people put their wings to make sure they don't fly mm-hmm. and they're stuck there Oh my goodness. I think of you every time I pass by and there's a couple that look like they maybe are in between. Would they have, would one have bred with the other? There's like one that's like white with gray. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's some new ones there. I don't know where they came from. 
Interesting. In closing, Beverly, I just wanted to thank you so much <laughs> for this time. It's been a great conversation and I would like to have another one. We, I think, have some other conversations that we can extend from this one. But I, are there any, in closing, any books or movies or shows that have impressed you lately that you could uh, recommend? Well, I, I'm a big Paul McCartney fan. He has a new two-volume set called Lyrics that he explains the background of 154 songs. I think he's a great songwriter, and it has a lot to do with politics. So my favorite McCartney song is nobody else's favorite that's called Nowhere Man. <laughs> you know that one? Yes, I do. He's yeah. a real nowhere man uh, sitting in his nowhere land. land. Looking for his lower land, isn't he a lot like you and me? So I just think he teaches lessons about life and politics. That's my favorite book. It, in terms of best books, you were talking about women before. I can't remember the name of it, but there is a new book about women in the city, which is really interesting. And it's about how cities are designed against the interests of women. For example, no curb cuts so you can't push a stroller or some bad guy lurking around the corner and jumps you and steals your purse, that, that kind of thing. But I, when I look at uh, books, um, I, I read a lot of planning books. And there's a wonderful website called Plan Medicine, P-L-A-N-E-T-I-Z-E-N. Any favorite places to travel or any travel plans coming up in the future? Believe it or not, those two articles that I sent you that were published last month mm -hmm. have already resulted in two invitations to speak in London and one in Madrid. Oh, wow. And six journals asking for summaries of those articles. So I was sorting through what I want to do. But some of those, rather than travel to those places, I could do it virtually. So I'm, I'm thinking about that. But here's a funny story. I was scheduled to give a keynote speech at a policy conference in Wuhan, China. Wow. In November 2019, just when the virus hit. And I had never even heard of Wuhan. But I got asked the spring before. I was all set to go. And on that beloved walking trail where we meet, I got hurt and my knees were cracked and I couldn't go. So I withdrew from Wuhan and probably am alive because of it. <laughs> that is I'm sure they would have treated me to everything, including maybe a look at the local market. <laughs> oh my goodness. What a story. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah, really. It's a good story. Your survivor. Extraordinary. Well, then they asked, would I like to speak sometime in the future? I said, nah. <laughs> what well, you can do virtually. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to hang on a minute, but I'll say goodbye for everyone here. I'm just, thank you for joining us. I know this conversation is going to be really enjoyed by a lot of people. And thank you so much for being Thank you. Okay. Hang on just a minute here. <laughs> 